We've been in the middle of Philippians, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi that he founded probably about 12 years before he wrote the letter. And we're looking at the theme of the missional life. We've been looking at this question of, it's, it's kind of like been, it's been an insider's look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus who's on mission and what the heart of that person is like. As we've looked at Timothy and Epaphroditus and these examples of seeking the interests of Jesus and of taking risks for the faith. And then as we've looked more actually at Paul's own self-understanding of his own life um, in relation to what he's pursuing, which game he's playing. We've looked at that theme a little bit. Um, the game of being great in the world or, or the game of knowing Christ his Lord. And last week we looked at the goal of Paul's life, which was to know Christ Jesus, to know Jesus as his Lord, and to know him not just in a kind of bookish sense, um, not just in, in the past, but to know him in the present personally and intimately. And I would venture to say, as we've looked at these texts together, it's probably become apparent, certainly it's apparent to me, that, that one thing that the church is in great need of today is maturity. As we look at this, this insight uh, into the heart of one who is following Christ with all that he has, I think we can see that there, there is a, there's a need in the church today for maturity, for growing up in Jesus, for not just having a kind of uh, passive, um, casual approach to who God is and to what he's revealed, but, but this kind of warm and heartfelt pursuit of Jesus. And we'll see that more here uh, as we look at this text tonight. We're going to focus more on verses 12 through 14 of chapter 3 tonight. But this idea of that the church needs maturity is not something that's new in any way, uh, lest I mislead us. Uh, this has been around from the beginning. And you read these pretty striking words in Revelation chapter 3 from Jesus himself to the church in Laodicea. He says this, he says, Jesus to the church, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This sense of being rich I have prospered. I need nothing. Could in many ways describe the church in the West today, at least, um, with its institutions and buildings and seminaries and knowledge. And yet it's a sign to Jesus of this church back um, in the first century of, of, a, of a drastic disease. And Paul speaks to that in, in these verses in chapter 3. He, he says... I've not arrived yet. Despite what you've just read about me, what he's just penned about having counted everything as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and taken everything that he could have boasted in and he could have gloried in, his pedigree and his accomplishments, and laid them at the foot of the cross, really counted them as rubbish, not just as things that, that were, were not of any use anymore, but things that were actually uh, detrimental to his new life in Jesus. So despite all of that in terms of his pursuit of God, and then if we could just go beyond this, this little insight into Paul in Philippians 3 and think about what he had done in service of Christ since the day that he had been converted. How he had labored and toiled, suffering from, from famine and thirst and shipwreck to plant churches, 
to, to love people, to teach them the word, to speak on behalf of Christ, to how he given himself to all this. He says, you know, despite all of this, despite my growth in Christ, I haven't arrived yet. He's not making the mistake of the Laodicean church that says, I'm rich, I, 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 have, I have much, I need nothing. He's saying, I haven't arrived. Three times he makes this affirmation. He really only says two things in these three verses. And the first thing is this negative statement. I haven't arrived. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. I haven't gotten there. Despite what I've just told you about my own heart and my own life. Or verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I haven't gotten to the end yet. I haven't arrived. And he gives us this insight with this, with this um, statement about his not having arrived yet, that spiritual maturity is actually seeing that you haven't arrived. It's seeing that you are still a work in progress. It's seeing that there's something more to, to walk toward and to aim for in one's life. It's seeing in many ways that what you've experienced of God up to this point in your life, Paul included, mind you, at this point in his life, what you've experienced is only like a little drop in the bucket compared to these oceans of the love and mystery and grandeur and mercy and compassion of the God that you know. It's only a little taste. It's not the whole thing. This is attested to throughout the, the tradition and the history of the church. Um, listen to Augustine's statement. Let us then seek as those who are going to find and find as those who are going to go on seeking. When you find a little bit of who God is, when you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, all this does is it serves to whet your appetite, to get the saliva kind of flowing in your mouth, to, to sink in deeper and to get to know him more and to grow deeper. Tozer says the same thing in his book. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to this a few times tonight. He says, to have found God and still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. To have found God and still pursue him. I haven't arrived, Paul says. And then Tozer quotes St. Bernard, who writes these words, We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. This idea of tasting and feeding upon God, only leading to a deeper hunger and a greater thirst, not because what we've tasted and what we've drank from is not real and genuine and God giving himself, but because God is so infinite and wonderful and majestic that there's always an infinite more amount of him to know. So against the, the, the complacency and the apathy and the distraction that so frequently can mark our own lives in the church today, we see Paul saying, I haven't yet arrived, I'm pressing on. And so that's where we turn next is he says, I press on. And he says this a couple of times in this text. He says, it's like I'm running a four lap race. I'm not going to stop at the third lap and start celebrating. How crazy would that be? How foolish would that be? But I press on. I press on. The question I want to ask is, as he says, I press on, is for what does he press on? And how does he press on? How does he dig in? How does he go on this pursuit? So quickly then, the, the what? What does he press on for? What is, what is Paul pressing on? What's the thing that he's longing for? And if you've got your text in front of you, just look at what he says. He says, not that I've already obtained this. He uses this. Um, 
verse 12, verse 13, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but I press on for the goal, toward the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what is it? What is this? What is the goal? What is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? There's a little bit of debate around this, but but I think it's pretty clear from verses 7 through 11 that we were in last week. And as we talked about the goal that Paul has, it's this goal of knowing Christ, not just in part, but in full. Not just in, in, in a, a bit, in, as through a mirror, dimly, but fully, face to face. It's this ultimate, intimate knowledge of Jesus that can come only when Jesus returns and Paul and all those with him are raised up from the dead to enjoy life forever with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what he's longing for. That's the goal. It's not just resurrection life itself, though certainly that is our hope as Christians, but resurrection life is simply the means to the end of the ultimate knowledge of knowing Jesus. And it's important to keep that distinction. So listen to what he writes in 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on love. Now I know in part, but his goal the prize that he's pursuing, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That's what he's pursuing. That's the what. So how is he pursuing that? How is he pursuing this ultimate knowledge of Jesus, this intimate, deep knowledge of Jesus that will come when Jesus comes back and makes all things new? How is he going about it? This word pursue, press on, verse 12, I press on to make it my own. Or verse 14, I press on toward the goal. Same word, same verb. This word is an important word. It means to push or to drive or to set in motion. Or it means striving hard after something. I mentioned Tozer. He wrote this little book called The Pursuit of God. The first chapter of the book, some of you might know, is called Following Hard After God. He probably got it from this verb in Philippians 3. This pursuit, this pursuit of God. Listen to what Tozer says. He says, come near to the holy men and women of the past and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. This is the witness of the biblical text is that the saints of God who have gone before us have pursued hard after God. So how does Paul pursue this goal of ultimate goal of knowing Christ fully and completely? Not in a passive way, not in a way that's uninvolved, not complacently, not apathetically, but pushing and striving hard after and with all of his effort, as we'll see in a moment in the metaphor that he uses. And lest you think this is against the grace of God in Christ, let me just say these words from 1 Corinthians 15. Where Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, and that is Jesus. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Same word for persecuted is the same word for, for pressing on, striving hard after the church of God to persecute it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is in me. Don't ever put striving after God 
which is a biblical call for the people of God over and against the grace and favor and unmerited favor and mercy of God. These two things go together. And Paul says, this is how I'm going to run. And then he uses this metaphor. He switches metaphors. We were in a financial metaphor the last couple of weeks, gains and losses, profits and things like that. Um, now we're in an athletic metaphor, appropriate for what today is, uh, not football, but running. And he says, I pursue this goal like a runner in a race. In three ways, this metaphor speaks to this pursuit. The first is in verse 13. Forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting the things behind me. The runner in the race, many of you I'm sure have run races before, the runner in the race is not supposed to look back at the competitors behind him. The point here is not about the competitors, but it's about looking back. It's not about looking back. Most likely to the things that Paul has just cataloged that he's left behind, that he's laid down as loss before Jesus. These things that he gloried in, these things that were his, his great uh, boast before the people of Israel, his pedigree and his accomplishments. But it could also mean that he's not looking behind, even at his successes, at the things that God has already done in his life. Do you ever find yourself in that kind of uh, predicament where you're looking back to the golden days? You're looking back to the days when when it was sweet and rich and, and you had fellowship with Christ in a way that you hadn't experienced before. And, and that kind of makes you more depressed in the present day. And it's sort of a disincentive for what you're longing for. And Paul says, no, no, forgetting what's behind. But we could go deeper and beyond that. It's, it's, it's forgetting everything. We have an incredible tendency, don't we, to be defined by the past as human beings. We have an amazing tendency to be defined especially by the failures of our lives in the past, by the things, the mistakes that we've made, by, by the wrongs that we've committed, by the people that we've hurt, or even by the people that we won't forgive. And that past keeps coming into the present and dragging us down. We have an incredible tendency to be defined by the past or even perhaps by our disappointments in God, perhaps. I mean, think about Paul. We already sort of mentioned the fact that he'd been shipwrecked. He'd been hungry. He'd been thirsty. He'd been beaten. He'd been stoned. Think about all these hardships that he had endured in his service of Christ. And he's not looking back. He's not saying, you know, God, you, you let me down there. I can't get out of there. But he's saying, forgetting what's behind. Forgetting the things that, behind, that are behind. This is how I pursue the prize like a runner in a race. Eric Little, the story made famous in Chariots of Fire, you know, he, he's in this 440-yard dash and he falls at the first turn and he gets up and he runs the race. And that's a good picture of what Paul's calling us to here. Don't look back at the adversity. Don't look back at the disappointments. Don't look back. Christ is taking care of all that. And Christ is calling you forward. So that's the first way that metaphor makes sense. The second way is, is what he says next. He says, forgetting the things behind. And then this next phrase is straining forward to the things in front of me. Straining forward to the things ahead. What lies ahead of the runner in the race? It's the finish line. I ran track in high school. My junior year, April 1993, I was in a track meet on Friday. And I think I was, I don't remember, I think I was running the 200 meter dash. 
And, uh, and this is the picture that Paul is describing here. I was getting to the finish line and I was leaning forward with all of my might, straining forward for the finish line. And I strained a little too hard and I fell um, as I came across the line. And I got this big strawberry right here. And the only reason that was important was because prom was the next day. <laughs> so I got to get a prom with big strawberries on my cheek um, after running that race. But uh, many of you have had that experience of, of straining forward. Every muscle, every nerve, every part of your mental capacity is focused on one thing and one thing only. In fact, Paul says that in verse 13. But one thing I do. It's literally just one thing. Forgetting what's behind. Straining forward to what lies ahead. And this is the picture that he gives to us here of no distractions. When you're running a race, if you ever run track or cross country or run a marathon um, or anything like that, there are always people yelling and screaming on the side. There's all kinds of commotion. Do you hear any of it? Does it distract you from the finish line? We live in a world with so many distractions. We're constantly bombarded by images, as you will be tonight during the football game. Image after image after image. Message after message after message. We are constantly facing distraction. And what Paul says is he runs this race in a way that is no distractions in his way of this goal of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. He's pressing in like the runner right before the finish line, leaning forward to the tape with everything that he has. That's the picture that he gives. And the third thing in this metaphor is why does he run? He runs for the prize. He's focused on the finish line because of the prize. In those days, a dried out celery leaf wreath that they put on your head after winning the race in Paul's day. In our days, the gold medal, the silver medal, the bronze medal. He runs to win the prize. And the prize, as we said, is Christ in full. And so he's focused in this way. That's why he runs so hard. But then let me come back to the one phrase that I've skipped as we bring this home. Verse 12. Why does Paul, why can Paul run in this way? Why can he be focused like an athlete, like a race, like a runner in a race, pushing forward to the goal, pressing ahead? Verse 12. A couple different ways to translate this. The, the, the version we've read, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. But I press on to obtain that for which Christ has taken hold of me. There is in Paul a very, very clear reality and sense that he knows so personally as one who persecuted the church of God that Jesus met him and called him and grabbed him as he was on the road to Damascus to persecute people who followed Jesus even more. And that he... He grabbed onto him. Paul knew that it wasn't I who chose Christ, but Christ who chose me. Christ who holds on to me. And God plucked him out of his frivolous, misguided zeal. Remember the game we talked about, the keeping up with the Joneses? All that zeal for, for becoming the, the, the best at what we do, the best looking, the best, the best performing, the best achieving, the best knowing, everything. God grabs people out of that pursuit. 
and puts them in the safety and the blessing of being grabbed onto now by Christ. And Paul knows this experience so that his striving after God is not a striving for approval. It's not a striving to make God love me. But it's the striving of one who's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And of one who knows just how wonderful this God is that has grabbed him. And it's no different for us. It's It's no different for anyone who knows Christ. Think about the story, the, the well-known story of the prodigal son. Takes the inheritance from his father, runs out, spends it on frivolous pursuits, finds himself feeding on the, pit, the pods that the pigs were eating that he was serving, and comes to his senses and says, you know, my father's hired hands have more than this. I need to go home. And what happens when he's on the way home? And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and what? Embraced him. Embraced him and kissed him. Any one of us that has come home to the God who made us has been embraced in Christ has been welcomed in Christ and continues to be embraced in Christ. And it's this insight of God's embrace of his people that enables Paul to run like the one who's running for the finish line with all of his might. It's the insight of the awesome and wonderful love that God has for his children in Christ Jesus that makes this, race a, a, makes this race worth running, that gives us energy and strength and empowerment to run in such a way as to win the prize. We've been grabbed onto. We've been taken hold of. So let me ask you this. How are you running? How are you running? Our complacency, apathy, distraction... Are these things the defining part of your experience as a follower of Jesus? Let me just say that God did not grab hold of you. He didn't grab hold of you so that you could have a kind of lukewarm existence in the church. He didn't grab hold of you so that you could have a respectable religious card in your wallet and pay homage to him every couple of hours on a Sunday and have a respectable life in the world. No, he didn't grab hold of any of us for that purpose. He grabbed hold of you so that you might become a fool for Jesus. He grabbed hold of you so that you would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are loved more than you could ever imagine and that you have a home in him for not just the rest of your days on earth, but for eternity to be his, to enjoy him in his presence forever. This is why he's grabbed hold of you. He's grabbed hold of you so that on this earth you might have a single-minded focus. But one thing I do on pursuing Christ through conforming your life to his death in selfless, sacrificial love to those around you. This is why he's grabbed onto you. As you come to this table tonight, 
When you come to the supper that Jesus instituted, and when you feed on his flesh and drink his blood in a mysterious sacramental way, you are reminded of the fact that he has embraced you. He's welcomed you. He's brought you to his table. He said, come and feed on me and drink from me and I will give you life. When you come tonight, come knowing that he has taken hold of you and he holds you deeply and he will not let go. And that's his promise to you. And dwell here, dwell here when we come to the table so that he might renew your heart for him. This is the primary engine. This is the primary motivation. This is the primary mover of the one who follows Jesus is the embrace of the father when the prodigal comes home. And that's what we celebrate week after week when we come to this table. Let me close with these words from Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every distraction, every bit of apathy or complacency, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking, looking to Jesus, the author and founder of our faith. Amen.